Isaiah 63, 15 to 64, 12. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him with joyful, uh, and who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at all these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? This is the word of the Lord. When we think of Advent, how often do we think of lament? Advent's all about happy, joyful lights and candles and cookies and good things. And this year's scripture readings for Advent have us in this section of Isaiah, and it's a song of lament, it's a song of longing, it is a, it's a heart-rending cry to God to act and to come and to do something marvelous because life is hard sometimes. And it's dark, 
and it's painful and we feel distant from God. And sometimes we need to come into the Advent season with that first admitted that we're feeling distant from God. I mean, it's just our culture right now, it's so busy and so distracted. And I mean, we've been talking a lot about this at even on our staff team lately, it's just November's just been one thing after another. In reality, when we kind of step back and we look at the whole picture of Advent, we have to remember that Advent isn't just about a baby in a manger, it is a king who is coming. It's not just about that first Christmas in Bethlehem, it's about the descent of the kingdom of God to come and rule and reign and to make all things new. It was the longing of the people of Israel for their Redeemer to come, for the the, the Father to, to act again as he did in the Exodus. And yet in Jesus' coming, it wasn't this great, marvelous kingdom, but a small baby king. And the shepherds heard this Behold, is born to you in the town of David a Savior, Christ the Lord, the Messiah, the coming one, the hopes and the expectations of Israel. And Jesus was somewhat different than what their hopes and expectations were. And so the longing continues. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, remember his apostles were saying, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the dates or times set by the Father's own authority, but I'll be coming again. And so Advent is a season of tension between we know that Jesus came as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he was exalted to the very highest place and he will one day come again. And so Advent takes in the cradle and the cross and the coming kingdom. And this year we start with a lament. If you look at Isaiah 63, 15, all the way to the end of chapter 64, you'll notice there's two questions that start this passage and two questions that end it. It's the, the, the Isaiah or, or, or the people of God, it's all in the first person plural. So this is like a communal prayer. Where are your zeal and your might? Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we may not fear you? Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Those are some brave questions to pray, aren't they? How many of us dare to pray like that? You just come to God and just say, Lord, I'm tired and I need you to intervene. Why aren't you doing it? God, things are so bad right now. Why aren't you acting? If you ever feel God is distant or disengaged or simply disinterested in the trials you're facing, here is a prayer for us. Here is a prayer for you. It's a lament. Now, a lament uh, about 
A third of the book of Psalms is lament. Lament has a very specific kind of outline to it. Starts with a complaint. Oh God, why are you taking so long? It outlines some of the problems or it reminds that the, the psalmist then goes on to remind God that he has acted so marvelously in the past. So why isn't he doing it now? And there's a question in there. And then there's usually an identification of the enemies or, or, or the situation that's causing tension in the psalmist's life. What's going on with this and why are these people allowed to do that? And I have these enemies. And then there's usually an admission of innocence. But me, O oh Lord, I have kept your word and I have not done anything wrong, so please smack this person upside the head for me. <laughs> it's there in the Psalms. Like, that's actually tame compared to what the psalmist pray. You know, like, take a jawbone and smash his teeth out. You know, that's right in there. That's right in the Psalms. And then there is the ending, which is usually, okay, God, now it's your turn to act. In this lament psalm, we're going to find something just a little different and very important for us. Let's take this one at a time. The first section, verse 15 uh, to the end of chapter 63, is the, is the initial lament. It's a lament of God's absence, and these two questions are, are in here. Where are your zeal and might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. feeling that God is distant and unconcerned. God's even, his, his heart seems to be removed from the situation. That's the first question. And then there is this statement. You hear these tensions between the complaint and the confidence, between the, the, the pain of the moment and the confidence in knowing who God is. Verse 16, for you are our father. You are our father. And, and, and actually, interestingly, throughout the Old Testament, this is a very not often talked about way to approach God. To, to address him as father. There is all these address, O Lord, O Yahweh, O covenant God, O, o Elohim, God, yes, but very, very rarely, our father. You know, Jesus takes that and he makes that the opening lines of his, his prayer that he teaches his disciples. Our Father who art in heaven. Now, this, is not, this is kind of not, not done so much in the Old Testament, but here we have it, this call to God as Father. Family. You, O Lord, are our Father. It's repeated. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. And so here in this opening lament with these questions about God's absence is, is, the, is Isaiah. I was going to say the psalmist because this is very much a psalm. It is a hymn. It is something prayed in community. Our Father, our Father, our Redeemer. The community together coming to God and saying, Oh, our Father and our Redeemer. A redeemer here, the Hebrew word is goel. And this comes from uh, just ancient Near Eastern family law that, that, that this is the kinsman redeemer, the one who has the responsibility and the right to redeem a family member back from slavery or, or from trouble or from debt. 
And the kinsman redeemer would pay the debt. He would free the captive. He would free the slave and bring him home to be family. And this is what Isaiah is praying for here and reminding God, you have been our father, our father and our kinsman redeemer from of old. And so there's confidence in God's goodness and God's identity. And there's this kind of interesting phrase, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. And this gives us a hint as to where this whole hymn is going, this whole prayer is going. Because this is the first admission that there is a distance in the covenant family relationship with God. Abraham and Israel, the founding ones, if you go through the Old Testament, a lot of times you'll, you'll hear God say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he identifies himself in relation to these people and, and notes that they had this very intimate relationship, Genesis 12, all the way to the end of the book of Genesis, this close personal relationship with God. And here Isaiah is saying, our, our fathers probably wouldn't even recognize us as your people. We are so distant from you, God, and we need your help. The second question in this lament can cause us to raise our eyebrows a bit, right? Verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? And harden our hearts so that we fear you not. You ever wonder if God's at fault? <laughs> What's the psalmist saying here? Why do you, O Lord, make us wander from your ways? It seems like he's putting the responsibility on God for the current situation and their distance from him. This is also part of lament. Lament is, is brash. Lament is, is, is harsh sometimes. Lament is honest. It says, God, we feel as if you have pushed us away and hardened our heart. You can hear the, the echoes of the Exodus and, and God hardening the heart of Pharaoh so that he would be forced to let the people go. But we have to remember that Pharaoh hardened his heart first. And it was a progression. And what happens often in our lives is that we start by rebelling against God and that rebellion turns into a habit and the habit turns into a hardness that God can only break, he can't soften. If you remember the story of Pharaoh as his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, and then it, start, it changes into God hardened his heart and it was so hard that the only time it broke was when he lost his son. And even then it didn't stay soft for long. The psalmist or the Isaiah here is complaining to God about the, 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 the sin sickness of the people as a whole. And he's asking God to move and to act. And John Oswald, in the NIV application commentary, suggests, most likely 
the, the writer, Isaiah, is speaking for the people who are trying to disclaim some sort of responsibility for their own condition. To say that they are sinning because God will not let them do otherwise is a gross slander of God, which God summarily rejects in the next chapter in 65 and verse 1. Right, the, the song, the, the, this whole lament is like, God, we're, we're stuck in our sin, we can't get out, you've put us here, and Psalm, uh, Isaiah 65, verse 1, God answers and he says, I've been holding out my hands to a rebellious and stubborn people, but you won't listen to me. And I have done everything I can to get your attention and draw you back. And that's actually the rest of Isaiah is God saying, I've answered this prayer already. I've been answering it for generations. But here the, the, the Isaiah is, is saying life is hard and we feel rejected. And so the first the first imperatives, look down from heaven, see your people, see your habitation, return for the sake of your servants. Return, turn back to us. It's a request for a solution to this problem. Look at the last bits of this chapter. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries trampled your sanctuary. We become like those over whom you've never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. When life is hard, sometimes our memory becomes selective and distorted, and the negative takes over so much that we can't even see the, the reality of the history behind us. These people had walked with God. Isaiah is speaking probably near the time of the exile in 587 B.C., but how, when did God start calling them? Back in Abraham's day and Isaac and Jacob and, and God acted decisively in the Exodus like almost 12 or 1300 years prior and brought his people out with the mighty hand and an outstretched arm and gave them the law and set them in, in, their, in the promised land and gave them uh, judges and kings and prophets and priests. And for a good thousand years or so, they had every opportunity to walk with God and be called by his name. But they can't see that right now. Because at this time, they've lost it all. And sometimes when we lose it all, that's then all we can see. And so we call out, look down and see and return for the sake of your people. And so Advent starts with a lament for God to act, as Isaiah expresses the feeling of being abandoned by God. And then chapter 64 starts out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Here is a, we have lament, and then it's remember, and it's call for God to intervene. God has been asked to see his people and return to his people. Now the, the, the song transitions 
to the next part that says, oh, that you would come down or, or oh, that you would have come down as you did in the past. And here's all of the reminders, and this goes back to the Exodus. To make your name known to your adversaries and the nations might tremble in your presence. And think of Exodus and the plagues. Think of Joshua and the city of Jericho. When you did awesome things we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. And here is the image of when the people came to Mount Sinai and God came down in a a pillar of fire and smoke and there was earthquakes. And and Exodus chapter 19 just paints this awesome picture of God's presence on the mountain. And this this is what Isaiah is saying. This is what we need again. We need to see your glory. We need to see your presence. We need to see your might and your majesty. And we need to hear your voice. This is all Sinai imagery. And this is Israel's salvation story that the hymn is celebrating and remembering and reminding God of and longing to experience it again, that closeness with God that they had at Sinai. And this is the key verse then, I think, in this whole passage. Verse 4, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. And this is the key to the whole thing. There's three postures of faith when we are under pressure and when we think God is distant. First, wait for him. Patience. We wait for him, and that's what Advent is all about. Advent is about a waiting, an expectation for God. And so it calls for patience. Joyfully working righteousness, a call to purity, a call to right living, regardless of the circumstances around us, and then who remember you in your ways, that we would practice the character that God wants for us. A waiting, a patience, a purity, and a practice. It is the absence of these traits among God's people that explains the absence of God's activity to rescue and restore them. And so the prayer puts us in that posture of faith under pressure. That God is our creator and our redeemer of Israel and he has repeatedly acted in history for his people, making himself known. Therefore, we can in faith have patience. We can walk in purity and we can remember who God is. And so Isaiah expresses this deep commitment to anticipate God's work because God has acted mightily in history. And so there's the lament that opens and it's just a pouring out of the soul to God. There is a reminder of God's great acts in history and his salvation for his people through the Exodus. And then something that doesn't happen often in a lament starts at verse, the second half of verse 5 to verse 7. Normally in a lament psalm, there would be an expression of the innocence of the psalmist. So God should act because I've been a good boy. 
But in this case, in this hymn, it is not a confession of innocence, but a confession of sin. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls on your name who rouses himself and takes hold of you, for you've hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. When we feel the absence and the inactivity of God, one of the first things we need to do is admit the reality of our own hearts. Admit our truth, the truth of what is in us. And Isaiah uses some very specific language here. We have all become like one who is unclean unable to come into the presence of God, unable to worship in his temple, unable to stand in his presence. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Again, from John Oswald's commentary, he says, sin is not, first of all, a behavioral dysfunction but rather an offense against the very nature of life, which finally must end in death and decay. Sin is not just behavioral. It's not just the things we do. It is an offense against the very nature of life, and life is what God breathed into us as his image bearers. He formed and fashioned us, and he breathed into us the breath of life. And he made us as his image bearers. And when we put any image in front or try to make an image of him, we devalue ourselves. And we, we reject the life that he has given us. And we hope to find it in some other way. The last clause of this, again, sounds like it's blaming God, but I think it's actually a result clause. All of these things are true of our hearts, and so God has hidden his face from us and has made us melt in the hands of our iniquities. Sin breaks relationship, and this is a vicious cycle. We waste away in our sins and the consequences of them, and God hides his face from the sinful and sinners can't and won't turn and repent without God then actively being present in our lives. Jesus said, unless the Father draws you, you can't come to me. No one comes to me except the Father draws him. Now, Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins and the transgressions of your heart, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus. Sin breaks relationship and we end up stuck in this cycle unless God intervenes. Only God can break the cycle. Only the light can dispel the darkness. Only the life can bring us back 
from the dead. And so there's a lament, a call to God to act. There is a reminder of God's gracious works in the past. There's repentance for the sins that we have all committed. And then there is a surrender and a call to God to act. But now, verse 8, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. The only recourse is to surrender to the shaping, molding potter's hand. God must act, and we must be willing for him to shape us and mold us into what he wants. It is a call to surrender. Having confessed sin, God is called to forgive and to restore. Be not so terribly angry. Remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we're all your people. Again, the call to God as Father, the, God, the, the call to God as the potter, the one who shapes us, the reminder of the Redeemer who can rescue us and bring us out of slavery, draw us to himself and welcome us back into family. We are all your people. We admit our reality of our sinfulness, but there's also another step on the journey to, to wholeness and forgiveness and freedom that God offers us. And that's in verse 10 and 11 here where we have to admit and embrace the painful reality of the consequences of our sin. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem is desolate. The holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire and all our pleasant places have become ruined. Sometimes I think we don't walk in the freedom of the gospel because we are afraid to admit the consequences that our sins have had on the people around us and in our own hearts. We just want to say, oh, Father, forgive me, and then that's it, and then we want to just be done, and we don't want to, we don't want to look around and see what those sinful acts have done to the people around us, to the potential destruction our self-centeredness has caused. But real confession and a return to God includes sitting down and... In Freedom Session, we call this a shield inventory where we admit the wrongs that we have done to other people and we look at the consequences that that has had on them and we also look at the habits that that has formed in our own hearts. Because sin starts as an act that becomes a habit, that becomes a hardness. And we need the Spirit of God to break into that. Confession includes a recognition of the consequences of our sin. Not just the acts of our sin, but the consequences as well. And so this 
song as we enter the season of Advent is startling. It's dark. It's hard. It's what we need if we want the light of God to come into our world. Because we can hear these same refrains in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have each turned to our own way. Earlier in Isaiah in chapter 53, we like sheep have gone astray. We have all gone our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's only one place where the iniquity and the uncleanness and the death of our own hearts can be restored and healed, and that is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so the questions, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Look at the ruin that our lives have caused and our sinful choices have created. We need you to come and be our father. We need you to be the potter who will shape us. We need you to be the redeemer who will restore us and rescue us. And God answers this ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 is the angel visits Joseph. He says, call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And on the cross and through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, freedom from all of this pollution and uncleanness in our hearts is available. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are new creations in Christ. That which was dead is now alive because of what Jesus has done. And we are recreated. And we are made new in Jesus And he has some good work for us to do that he prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. For as by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Not not just do them, but walk in them, live it out in every day. The incarnation, God sent his son to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And on the cross, Jesus provided the salvation that we all need. And then, as we read earlier from Mark 13, the king is going to come. And everything will be made new. And so Advent is a time of tension. It is a time of waiting It is a time of praying. It is a time of remembering God's mighty acts for his people. And that should give us hope. In the confusing and sometimes painful waiting in between. It is a time where we confess our sins and repent and turn back to God for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And so we wait And we pray. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. And we are the work of your hands.
Lord, thank you for this season. Thank you for the hope that we can have in Christ. Thank you that in Christ we have hope. That, Lord, in and of ourselves, we do not. And we live empty lives apart from your life. Jesus said in in John that I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life sent down from heaven. Lord, may we see in you everything that we need and everything that we hope for and everything that our hearts are crying out for in a world that is twisted and broken and dark. And may we see the light too for our own hearts that without you are twisted and broken and dark. Lord, thank you that you have acted decisively to set your people free. In Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is in his name we pray and his peace that we rest and in his sacrifice that we find our life. Amen.